Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Today we're speaking to the new CEO of Pensana Metals, Tim George. He's going to talk us through their business thesis, and that is that the Chinese EV manufacturers have been told to diversify their supply chain, and we're going to work out whether that stands up to scrutiny or not. He's also giving us an update on their recent drill results from the press release, and we talked through whether or not management are overpaid in mining. If you want to watch more on these topics, please click on the timestamps in the description below. And for those of you new to cruxinvestor.com, please click the button in the corner of the screen to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Good morning, Tim. How are you? Morning, Matt. Uh, well and yourself? Yeah, fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us all the way from Cape Town, South Africa. Um, why don't you sort of kick off, give everyone a sort of reminder as to what Pensana Metals is? Yeah, Pensana's uh, 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 <clears throat> got a project in Angola uh, involved in the rare earth uh, side of things, particularly on the focusing on the neodymium and praseodymium uh, extraction, aiming to uh, <clears throat> mine uh, relatively soft rock deposits and, uh, and concentrate it and uh, export as a concentrate sale. Okay, fantastic. Now, you're relatively new to the team, joined in April. Um, why did they bring you on board and what are you doing? <laughs> well, I, I uh, had a phone call from Paul uh, uh, quite a few months ago now and asking if, he would, if I would be interested in, in the project. Uh, I have had uh, quite a few uh, forays into Angola in the past, uh, back in the early 2000s and subsequent to that. Um, so <clears throat> I've got a reasonable amount of history associated with Angola. Um, I'm also a metallurgical engineer um, by training, if, mm. if uh, that helps in these rare earth projects. They're all different, so there's an awful lot of chemistry that goes along with that to understand. Um, but the combination of that and the associated with my previous project history uh, in terms of delivery uh, on, on, on that front uh, was why Paul was interested in me. And then I, uh, I had a look at the projects back in April and thoroughly came to uh, understand the potential there. So, yeah, so we've got, I just want to understand, so um, Angola, Portuguese influence, Chinese influence of late, and also quite important to the, the, the UK. Is that right? Correct. And, and actually, Angola is one of the most cosmopolitan African countries that I've ever been involved in. And I've been in quite a lot of the sub-Saharan Africa side of things. Uh, the, uh, the oil industry has obviously attracted uh, everyone from the Americans to the French, uh, etc. Um, historically, um, the previous political uh, dispensation attracted Russians and Cubans into the environment as well. Um, South Africa has been uh, in up there in various guises over the years as, as well. So it, it really is a melting pot of, of, uh, of cultures and, and it's truly cosmopolitan from that point Okay, so I just want to sort of cover up a few areas very quickly, just kind of set, set up the conversation, as it were. So just 
if you may just remind people what neodymium and um, praseodymium do where do they sit in the market obviously it's to do with magnets but you know what what precisely are you uh, getting into yeah, I mean, the key thing here is uh, the transformation um, of transport in terms of the shift away from internal combustion area, uh, engines to the uh, magnets, permanent magnet motor. And obviously, as everybody knows about the battery metals associated with that transition. However, the efficiency of changing electrical energy into motor power is, is largely determined by the strength of the magnets in the motors. And praseodymium and neodymium are by far and away give the strongest and most efficient reaction in in that from the point of making those batteries last longer um, on on uh, on all the vehicles. Right. So, um, so that's where it sits in terms. Of, so you're you're you associate yourself with the battery uh, metal space and the EV revolution that's coming. People understand the sorts of numbers that have been quoted in you know lots of interviews like this and uh, lots of information about it. China controls 87% of the NDPR, neodymium, praseodymium market as it stands. There are a few other players in the market, um, Brazil, Russia, uh, India, Southeast Asia, but not in large, large sums. I mean, you're positioning yourself as, you know, potentially a world-class size asset. Is, is that right? Correct. I mean, the uh, as you would have uh, gathered from the previous interview with Paul, um, <clears throat> the carbonatite deposit that's been uh, found and explored and, and uh, is currently the focus of the pre-feasibility study that uh, Pensan has undertaken um, is a significant deposit in size. I mean, in the, <clears throat> in fact, the uh, the infill drilling has only been done on a very small portion of the deposits, and uh, uh, investors may have noticed uh, there was a recent release a couple of yeah. days ago, which uh, basically looked at the ongoing exploration potential associated with the deposit. Yes, I saw. I saw that. I, I, I liked the headline. It said, "Diamond Drilling reports spectacular results," and then I, <laughs> which is always better than just high grade. Um, so you're you're pleased with what you're starting to see from the assets? Is that I think that's pretty much what it's saying. Yes, very much so. I mean, this this uh, one of the attractive things to me as an engineer is the is the low cost mining methodology associated with uh, weathered material and well right at surface so from day one you're, you're into um, material that you can upgrade and 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 sell you're not involved with a, a long-term stripping operation ahead of operations commencing okay so I mean it's just one to remind people so you were a circa 35 million dollar Aussie dollar company you've got some cash in the bank circa what four or five million five, five million yes, bucks five. at them at the moment um you've just made a statement you've got a low cost operation does that mean you've got some kind of sense of what the capex is going to be yes we're building on that at, at the moment as i said i mean most of the uh details on that side of things will be out in the pfs which is uh, due out in september um, when we'll be really bringing all of the various aspects um, that are, uh, are ongoing at the moment in terms of 
uh, capex definition, infrastructure uh, costs, uh, the uh, metallurgical processing side of right. things, they're all coming to a head so over, that, over, over the next month and a half. Excellent, excellent. So that's 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 a kind of fairly early early stage um, piece of work. You're then going to move on to get a DFS to kind of you know firm those idea those ideas, those costs, the economics up. Um, this five million bucks that you've got at the moment, that's going to see you through to the end of the DFS period, or are you looking to raise money before then? Look, I I, I, I think that it will be necessary in in the, the, the months before the end of this year. Um, however, it's not critical to us that. That funding there will see us through into next year. Right. Um, we'll see us through into completion of the PFS and and beyond. Um, we've already lined up um, quite a lot of optimization work uh, and and additional uh, definition work on on the mining and processing front to be able to accelerate the, the project from PFS in, in towards a far more detailed design process. Right. Okay. So you said it's it's not critical. Does that that mean you're you're comfortable around your ability to go and get money should you need it to take you through to you know I say the end of a DFS process? Absolutely. Look, I mean the the, the last raise uh, was was relatively quickly uh, in terms of its turnaround. Um, it was it engaged key uh, long-term investors in in, in in who believe in the company and and, and new institutions who followed been following it and have increased their stake. Fidelity went up from uh, five to ten percent in terms of ownership during this last raise. I mean that, that that's in terms of their uh, uh, backing of of this particular project is what we're particularly pleased and aim to build on. So the investors for the last round mainly institutional. Is, is that what you're saying? Yes, it was. It was a combination of institutional, out, uh, some support out of London to add to the ongoing Australian and, and Hong Kong um, right. based support that we've got at the moment, and a mix of, of institutional and high net worth. So you say that's an endorsement of the the whole EV battery story, which you're talking to the market about, and I, I guess they're seeing elsewhere. Well, it was interesting, actually, the raise was um, against the backdrop prior to the real trade war, as it's been called, hotting up. Um, so it was an endorsement of the project itself, as opposed to the environment that we were raising in. And uh, uh, some say we should have waited, but we... We'd already taken the, the plunge at that particular point in time. Timing is timing, isn't it? You, you can, if you could uh, tell the future, it would be great. Um, so can I just talk about the asset? So what's the position of the asset? That's fully secured, 100% owned by Pensana, is it? We have a, um, a partner, uh, Ferengol, in, in the assets, who is the state concessionaire in, in Angola, for, um, as the name might suggest, Ferris. Uh, metals, non-diamondiferous, mm -hmm. which is uh, in the armor's realm. Um, and uh, they've uh, proved to be uh, very, very uh, cooperative and uh, enthusiastic about this project. The, uh, the background in Angola is actually quite interesting at the moment in terms of moving towards a very facilitating environment for foreign investments to actually happen. They've made a 
a, a strategic decision that they would like to diversify the economy in terms of its previous dependence on oil and diamonds. Did, did, did they um, have a choice? <laughs> I like the way you positioned that. Right. <laughs> Look, I think I think you go back in time in Angola. It was the breadbasket for, for Portugal in mm. terms of agriculture and 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 so on. There was. Up until the start of the Civil War, there were various, uh, um, from iron ore to granites and limestone, cement, etc., um, in already in place. Um, obviously, the Civil War took its toll on those, um, and uh, almost went from to zero overnight in '76 and '77, and now. Uh, now obviously, the oil side of things has uh, been largely offshore, uh, kept things moving along. And while those uh, days were good, uh, um, uh, the, the proceeds were enjoyed. But uh, oil, as we've seen, uh, has, has struggled a little in, in, in the past couple of years. And therefore, it, yes, it's been a bit of a catalyst mm. for this process to accelerate. But I mean, Back 15 years ago, uh, um, when I was uh, um, in Angola uh, on the diamond side of things, this diversification was talked about, but it wasn't really enabled by the structures that were in place at the time. And that's what's particularly changed, and in my view, a big step forward in terms of where Angola is um, now, and also comparatively to the rest of sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. Well, can we, let's come back to the question, which was um, in terms of ownership. What, what's that split between the partner, your partner and yourself? Uh, Ferengol of 15% um, right. of, of, of the project. Right. And, uh, and what about the portion that you own? Are, are there any covenants um, associated with that? What, what are the liabilities or risks associated with your ownership of, of the 85%? Well, at the moment, we are going through the permitting process to go and to, to achieve a mining license. That's underway. We've already initiated the environmental uh, studies that are necessary both uh, to comply locally with legislation there and, and from an IFC standpoint. Those, those consultants are busy. They've done the, uh, the wet season work, now moving into the dry season work on that. So that process is, is, is going forward to a conclusion towards the end of this year. And that will then basically, uh, <clears throat> we already understand the, the mining contracts terms and conditions and provided that it's supported by an economic uh, feasibility study, the PFS will obviously feed into that in the next couple of months, um, then it automatically uh, flips into uh, an, an, an operating mining license. So right. I'm quite comfortable that the difference from 20 years ago when there was a negotiation period between the exploration and the mining license in Angola is now gone. It's seamless. And from a, from a, um, from, from a ownership and uh, comfort and de-risking point of view, it's a, it, it's a, that seamlessness in that process is is uh, is extremely valuable. Um, so the, the mining license and permitting process is underway. There, a PEA has happened. It you know it has a, a bit of variance to it, plus or minus thirty percent usually. Um, but the, the the PFS due later this year will give some 
comfort around the assumptions that you've you currently are, uh, are using. Um, the can we can we talk can we get back and talk get back to the kind of thesis the the the, strat, the strategy and then the thesis right here. So the the strategy for you is to build up a a, a large um, rare earth business in Ang Angola. Um, have you thought about what the end game is there? Or is it just you know get it ready for someone to get taken into production, or you, you guys got the team on board to be able to do that? Well, it's part of the reason why why I'm in, I'm involved. I mean, I my history with Anglo, De Beers, and 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 others has been around project implementation. I've been involved with feasibility studies through to um, um, mine execution processes and. Uh, and also grew up in those operating environment environments myself. So I've, um, I cover that side of delivery uh, from conceptualization through to actual production uh, myself. I'm able to build those teams up, and so we, you know, quite confident about that. I mean, I just just pointing out on on this particular project, we're, we're not doing anything particularly uh, complicated. Mm -hmm. we're, we're going into soft rock mining uh, and, and a, a, a relatively uh, soft liberation process uh, and a flotation process followed by uh, dewatering and shipping a concentrate. It's, it, it's, uh, it, it's not complicated. It's designed around what is actually there. We have reasonable infrastructure there in terms of the, uh, the, the access via um, road, rail, air, et cetera, to be able to be in and out of, 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 of the project as, as necessary. And, uh, and, and that's a particular aspect of Angola that, is, that has changed substantially over the last decade. I mean, the Chinese have built this or rebuilt the railway that used to do over a million tons per annum down from the copper belt. So who owns that? that? Is, do they do they own that, or are they just? It's still it, 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 it's been financed by the Chinese, and obviously that debt has to be repaid. And so the likes of us coming along and uh, and putting up a processing operation that that can then provide a revenue stream to the railway. Um, down to the port of Lobito, and and then uh, a, a revenue to the port of Lobito, which is designed uh, <clears throat> for a much greater capacity than our operation will ever be able to deliver. And so those sorts of revenue streams are obviously attractive to uh, to the Angolan authority. And, and who who's, who built the port? Well, the, the port was a, was has been there for many years. It has been refurbished again by the Chinese. Um, by the Chinese. Right. The, uh, they put another they they put you know close on four billion between the port and the rail side of things to uh, in terms of upliftment. Okay, I'm just trying to um, if I may just try and understand the answer. So the Chinese have built the rail, built the, or upgraded the port um, as a infrastructure project, but they have no control over those other than, I guess, they're owed a bunch of money by the Angolan government. Well, we've visited the uh, the port authorities and the rail authorities, and they're very much Angola. Okay. In terms, 
for the administration side of things. So it, 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 it's locally controlled in terms of how it functions and how it's managed. I'm just trying to understand again, liabilities, you know, what influence or control Chinese may have further down the line, should they so wish. And it sounds like you're saying that it, the Angolan government firmly in charge, and we sh that's not a concern. No, it's, it, it, it's, it's not a concern. I, I think that the, Ang the Angolan uh, uh, side of things has become particularly well geared to understanding what investment opportunities uh, uh, need, in, how investment opportunities need to be developed to in, in, ensure uh, attractiveness to the to the investor. I mean, the, the the oil sector, for example, is one of those very mature in terms of the the way in which concessions are granted, the way in which they're handled operationally afterwards. Obviously, aspects like localization are key in 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 those processes. But in terms of uh, secure revenue streams thereafter and marketing products and so on. Yeah. They're very clear in the way those are laid out. Okay. As part of, part of this uh, conversation, we've done a lot of research on your companies, a very good website. I encourage people to go and take a look at your website, very, very clear communication. We need to believe three things will happen. We need to believe where NDPR sits in the EV revolution or evolution. Um, we need to believe um, your thesis that and you've made this statement in your PowerPoint again, the Chinese EV manufacturers are being told by the EV customers, presumably the automotive brands, that they need to diversify their supply chain. And then obviously, thirdly, that you've got the ability to raise the capital to build this out for the, for the CapEx. If I may come back to the second point, which is with regards to diversification of the Chinese supply chain. They have 87% of the market currently in terms of production. Um, outside of that, it's very fragmented. You're hoping to be one of the larger rare earths companies once you get into production. But what kind of pressure is on you or the Chinese EV manufacturers from the automotive companies in terms of timing? When, when's, this, when's the expectation of this diversified supply chain? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, the, the, the question is at the moment at what rate um, the transition will, will happen. Uh, I think the, uh, whether, whether it starts in earnest in two years or five years or seven years, it's a matter exactly. of speculation. How much time have you got? Uh, and before it, before the it, Chinese go somewhere else. Yes, yeah. Look, I, I, I think there are, there are a number of factors that play into this. Yes, there is a need for diversification of, uh, of source material outside of China. The issue at the moment is that the bulk of the, of the processing uh, uh, in production of the actual rare earth metals than themselves still occurs on a vertically integrated basis in, 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 in China. And that's going to take time to match that sort of capacity or even uh, up, uh, over, over the next few years. Those uh, industrial complexes do not appear overnight. 
So I think this is the start of a process it, and, and it, it will move towards balance as most things do in their, in their natural cycle. It will provide opportunities for others to think about business plans associated with those. And once the demand starts picking up uh, and the stability is there, then investment in those type of downstream processes outside of China um, will happen. Um, so I think we're, we're at the start of a, a road that uh, has got lots of potential in it, um, even for a, a company like ours in terms, of, in, in terms of what may happen downstream later. Um, but the, at the point of, <clears throat> of, the, of the fact of the matter is at the moment that there are limited options in terms of offtake, um, and they're generally in China. So have you been part of any of those discussions or are you, are you aware of the content of any of those discussions with regards to, you know, if China's worth 87% of the market now, you know, are they looking for, you know, to get to 50% of the market for, as part of the supply chain? I mean, how, and how do, how do you control that? Because there's a, there's a few, as I said, you know, it's a very fragmented space at the moment. There's a few, few players, not, not of any note. Um, What's the expectation or demands from the automotive brands themselves in terms of some of those numbers? Or is that not determined yet? No, it's, it's, that's not really been on, on my radar to date. Mm. Um, look, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of, uh, of the need for them to demonstrate that they're moving away from dependence on, on, uh, on China in terms of imports of those particular materials. I am aware of various companies that have pretty much said, we'll take whatever you can uh, produce going yeah. forward. Um, again, recognizing that there are several steps in that value chain before you end up with metal that can actually be used as an alloy in those, uh, in those magnets, for example. Given it's the kind of cornerstone of your thesis as to why your business will succeed, there needs to be a diversified supply chain for the Chinese EV battery manufacturers. What do you know? I mean, you know you've, you've got a business, $35 million market cap business. What, what do you know around where this market is going in relation to you, that gives you comfort that you're in the right space, you're doing the right things, that you're going to have those buyers there, the demand is there. I mean, uh, I, I think anecdotally, the easiest response to that is that uh, we um, are regularly questioned on when we will start producing and what grade of concentrate we'll be producing and. Uh, there is there, there isn't a shortage of inquiry on that basis from who well from from particularly from the Chinese at the moment they are recognizing that they have to look further afield in terms of being able to say we're right. not just solely reliant on our own internal production right so the, another interesting statement from your um, PowerPoint was the Chinese very broad term uh, not interested in supporting a project that will become a competitor. What, what, what do you think that statement means? Or can you help us understand what that statement means? 
Okay, I, I think if you the, the further you move down the value chain, it, that's where the threat is. You know, so once you move beyond producing a concentrate down and producing into producing a carbonate or or rare earth form uh, or other rare earth form, and then to, towards moving uh, uh, into producing metals and so on, that that's the aspect that uh, the Chinese would regard as competitive behaviour. Right. It's loosening the monopoly that they have at the moment. I mean, quite frankly, they they're not wrong in terms of saying, well, we can switch the taps off yeah. and uh, and use it as a bargaining chip. Well, well, that's well, that's an interesting topic. Let's let's talk about that because that that that's the bit that interests me. You know, and that's why I was asking about infrastructure earlier in terms of control factors in the country. You know, Chinese are big, influential in Angola and lots of other surrounding countries um, in in Africa. But what at what what point? Because you've said that you want to get this into production, right? At what point do the Chinese go? Well, actually, now you've worked out what's there, how much is there, what the grade is, what it's worth. I think we're going to step in at this point and have a conversation about acquiring this because that removes the competitor component or the ability to be a competitor. It secures control, which I guess answers the question of uh, around supply chain diversification. Um, and how, in how much how much control do you have on that conversation? Because you know you you are where you are in terms of market cap. You are where you are in terms of ability to access cash, uh, and the the Chinese and broad context. If they're interested, they're coming in, aren't they? How do you how do you control that? Look, I, I, from a from a strategic point of view, it's one of the reasons why we're particularly pushing this project down the throats of institutions. Right. Some might argue it's a little bit early, but actually if you're going to have a good chance of uh, of seeing this thing through to operation, yeah. then you need the support and to start develop, developing that support uh, as early as possible, because that is the crux of the matter in terms of uh, making sure that the, the right ownership structure is in place, it's healthy, it's able to dig into a, into pockets to fund the sort of capital expenditure that's required. We've kept this one um, in terms of uh, its capex requirements uh, low in relative terms to, to, to others to ensure that it's balanced in terms of political risk, a geographic location, etc, etc, um, to make it's attractive to that type of institution that can see it through. But isn't that? But isn't that? I mean, the institutional uh, players, the the funds, etc. You know, they they're small. They're small players. Even Fidelity, ten percent. That's a, that's, a, that's a not a lot of money for, uh, for them. And this isn't a big part of their portfolio. Are you able of, to have conversations with other strategic partners who may come in with? Large, you know, with, with large pockets, you come with larger investments, whether it be at project level or, or you know, the PLC level, or do the, will the Chinese look at that and, and frown slightly? I mean, again, it comes back to how much control have you got here? Indeed, look, I, yeah, I mean, the rare earths has been a niche market for some time. It's it's got a bad dose of 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 reality. 
uh, a few yeah. years ago. Uh, well, I, I, I just you know prices went up and prices went yeah. down. But yeah. I think the the interesting thing here at the moment is is that the the stability and demand uh, and the growth potential is attracting obviously juniors like ourselves to to uh, have another go at this particular niche. Um, but some more of the strategic mining uh, players are also starting to pick up and take notice of this as a potential aspect to uh, their portfolio uh, in, in, in the mining side of things. So it, it's not purely uh, uh, the institutions or the Chinese, it's the, also the, uh, the larger mining corporations that are paying more attention to this than they have done for 20 years probably. But that, you know, they, they too need to, come, coming back to the first point that we need to believe, which is around the, the EV revolution being here to stay and, and where NDPR fits in that. Um, as you say, Rare Earths has had a spiky journey over the last of 20 years. Uh, it comes in and out of fashion and there's quite a few commodities. I think the cobalt people will tell you, also battery metal. We'll, we'll tell you, you know, two years ago, life is going to be good and they're down at a third of the price they were, you know, 18 months, two years ago. You know, it's unpredictable. What gives you the confidence that NDPR and specifically Pensana is going to be able to weather the storm should there be one? And in fact, do you think there will be one? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm confident in terms of the market stability around pricing. For the time being, the, the, right. you know, it, it, I'm writing that there, down. There are, there are there are benefits. There are benefits to monopoly situations in, in certain circumstances in terms of price instability. But, but do you but do you think you're there? Because like I say, if the Chinese control a large portion of the market, the market, the rest of the market outside of China is fragmented. That you know, that's hardly monopolistic control, which is good for you, is it? If you're looking at benchmarking prices, then having that in the background is helpful, I believe, in terms of that level of stability associated with uh, maturing industries in in China. Um, the uh, on 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 our side, what the factors that are in our control is to make sure that we produce it as affordably as we possibly can. Keeping the uh, maximizing the use of the of the great infrastructure that is right on our doorstep. I mean, how many other operations get to be four kilometers away from a railhead with uh, yep. uh, with with a port just down the road um, for this type of activity? Um, Angola has just uh, interconnected its uh, main uh, hydro power schemes up in yep. up in the north to the middle of the country again so we've got green power hydroelectric power um on our doorstep on on that side of things so yeah i think the operation simple yeah and uh, uh and 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 as a consequence of that the concentrate is going to be competitively priced well yeah like i say you know i look forward to seeing the numbers that come out with the with the pfs you'll get some certainty around the economics uh, and 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 as you say, one would expect it to be a very low-cost operation. Um, look forward to seeing that. Now, if, so 
thanks for running through that and also lovely to meet you. Um, I want to yes. deal, I want, I'd love you to help me with one of the other themes that we're talking about with junior explorers uh, at the moment, which is, which is around um, investors' concern over how junior explorers manage their overheads and how they keep costs low and the importance of it with, within an operation, which is you know, pre-revenue. So, um, and we've had lots of feedback from various CEOs, you know, giving us their opinion. I mean, so I mean, how, how are you? How are you guys treating um, this? I mean, if we, if we look, at, let's let's take a really t hot topic: salaries, rec uh, remuneration, re recompense. How do you guys tend to structure that? Are you front-loaded? We're going to take it in salary and no shares. Are you back-loading it and saying, well, actually, we totally believe in this project. I'll take more equity or shares, options, once, however you remunerate, but I'm happy with a lower salary. I mean, how would you position yourselves in the market? A, a bit of a combination. I mean, the, 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 there's, there's a salary component, which is market-related, uh, on, on lower than some, but right. a fair chalk. Uh, and uh, performance shares uh, on the long-term objectives. Um, over the two-year horizon, we've set ourselves some fairly, uh, how shall I say, uh, aggressive objectives in terms of bringing this thing into uh, into production. Um, and they, those performance shares are linked to, to that. Um, and, and with some short-term incentives in terms of the immediate future, the six-month horizon. So it is incentivized significantly, um, but uh, nobody is going to starve in the meantime. And I think you have to have that balance uh, in, in, in terms of making sure that people make the, the decisions for the right reasons in terms of the project itself. You've got to consistently develop of a, a, a pragmatic uh, process of achieving your uh, objectives, uh, and uh, you know the worst you can do is kid yourself. Yeah, no, it's, it's just an interesting. It's an interesting topic within chat rooms and forums, and you know, I'm going to take the extremities of some of those comments out. But the fundamental thing is that yes, C-suite directors need to be paid for making important decisions based on their experience and their knowledge. But at the same time, there's an expectation that they should be heavily rewarded for success. And that, like I say, those can be short, medium and long term. But there's no point in doing a peer analysis. I'm, I think one chap the other day said, I'm, you know, I'm not in the uh, top 200 list, but he's he was also comparing himself to large billion dollar producers, which, I, you know, that's not the point. It's a case of against your peers, is it a reasonable recompense? Seems to be what people are talking about. And you know, sometimes the answer is no. Um, but you feel that you've got, and it's all public information, but you know, you feel that you guys have managed this accordingly for a 35 million market cap company. I think so. I mean, if you look at the experience that's required in this type of environment, there are not that many people available for it. Um, and from that point of view, it's, it, it has to work for both ways. Um, you, your, your 
junior cycle of uh, job security against when the next funding is going to in, going to come in obviously also plays a role in that um, there are a lot of external forces that, uh, that come to play that you have absolutely no control over um, and at the end of the day if you if when you deliver it is a significant uplift for the initial investors who come in as to know and in that's an early stage so I'm, I'm well, well it, 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 it can it can be tim it can be but 19 out of 20 junior explorers don't make it right so it it, it can be a significant uplift for, but most of the time it's not unless you're very good at picking the winners and i don't know anyone including yeah. myself that is um <laughs> all of the time and this is, you know, do you, do you think there's anything to be gained by making sure that people or management is truly aligned? You know, because again, we, we spoke to a CEO recently who's on six, okay, market cap, similar to yours, on 600,000 bucks a year mm. cap, salary plus incentives. And I, you know, to, I can see why his investors, that might stick in the throat a bit. Um, but anyway, that's a... That's a conversation for another time. Um, I just wanted your opinion, your views, and you know how you're going to treat this business going forward in terms of managing cost um, with regards to G&A. Salary is obviously a big part of it, and so some remuneration, but it, it, it's indicative of your attitude to um, how you're treating this. Look, I, th I think simple, simple analogy from here. I mean, my location in terms of in and out of Angola is far more favorable uh, being at, in, on the same continent and four hours flight away. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't fly business class, I fly economy up there. It's a four hour flight. Um, that's the sort of, I'd rather see that type of uh, money going into the ground mm. uh, than, than into an airline pocket. So that's, okay. that's my philosophy. And uh, at the end of the day, I'm an engineer, I do, want to make sure that uh, there's a deliverable. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what everyone's looking for. And I guess in the next few few months, we'll, um, you know, tell us a little bit more about what you're doing. I've got to ask that I've got to finish on the, the, the question, which I still can't wrap my head around 1.4 billion shares out that the ASX has, a, has a, a love affair with large numbers of shares. But I'm told the Australian investors don't mind. <laughs> Is that true? Look, I think you, I mean, if you go back in the history in terms of what you're saying, one in 19 succeeds. One in 20, and, uh, one in 20. They're, 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 those numbers are generally a consequence of previous uh, exploration ventures that uh, then need recapitalizing because they, they didn't go anywhere. But you, you, don't, um, you don't like to roll back. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, we've we've just uh, just announced a consolidation um, because it's you're quite right. It's, it's, it's getting up there. The it's getting up. Well, certainly, certainly, certainly for, re for certainly for retail investors, I think it's it's becoming uh, you know, it's a, I think it's a bit of a problem for retail investors. I think if you know moving forward, if you're going to be looking for liquidity and a bit more trading, because your institutional holders will be just that holders how are you going to drive that mm. share price up without retail and encouraging them to come on board so you know 
I think doing a rollback or consolidation is, you know, mm. certainly something you need to consider. But um, Tim, I've really enjoyed that. Lovely to meet you. Um, you've obviously been here a few months now, but uh, good luck for the next few months. And do come back and talk to us. Would love to do that, Matt. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.